Throughout history, Christians have created art, written books, and made music for worship, entertainment, and to express their faith in ever-increasing endeavors. And for the last six decades, they have created contemporary Christian music for the church and for the masses. Here at Legacy, we are counting down the finest works over these last decades. So join me, your host, David Lohman, as we celebrate CCM's greatest albums, right here on Legacy. Ah, thank you once again for joining me on our trip from 1001 to number one, looking at the greatest albums in the history of Christian music. We're going to take a look at nine albums today. We're going to have two interviews, and we will also be traveling from Glasgow, Scotland, all the way to outer space. We'll be talking to Michael Manthai of the group Anthem way back in the early 80s, one of the early Christian rock bands. And we'll also be talking to PJ Bostic, who's also known as Paul Rohrbach, uh, talking about uh, what does it mean to go from a band like Grandma Train to creating your own music. So all this and more on this episode of Legacy, CCM's Greatest Albums. And we'll be right back with PJ Bostic. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash legacy CCM's greatest albums at Instagram at legacy CCM's greatest albums and finally on Twitter at legacy CCM's best. And now 976. Right now we're talking with Paul Rohrbach, who also known as uh, PJ Boston. We'll get to that question right away. He was a member of, uh, let's see, there was One Bad Pig, Blood Good, Grandma Train, one of the co-founders of Grandma Train, and has an amazing album called Light Me On that is our feature and focus for right now. So I wanted to welcome to the program, to Legacy, uh, Paul Rohrbach, PJ Bostic. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Good. Hey, if you can even just give me an idea, what was the reasoning behind the name of PJ Bostic? Well, I found out late in life that I'm actually a Bostic. My grandfather, uh, who I was really close to as a young child, and I just loved my grandfather and worshipped him. And then uh, my dad and my grandfather had sort of a falling out. And so I grew up not kind of knowing him other than my young childhood years and then when I was 18 I kind of put my foot down and said I want to know my grandfather and so they got me in touch with him and it ended up actually bringing some healing between my dad and his dad and so he flew up to Seattle and spent some time with us and hung out and I don't exactly know the whole story but it, it turns out that we're Bostic and he 
asked if we'd be willing to change our name uh, to carry on the family name. And at the time, I didn't want to because I was in grandma train and I had a name for myself and I was getting studio gigs and things were going well. And I was afraid if I changed my name, that would sort of mess that up somehow. And in retrospect, I, I kind of regretted that and I wish that I would have. I, I don't know how everyone else felt about it. I, I kind of sensed that I was the one holding things up on that. And so um, we didn't change our names. And then when I started this, I, I thought I would just change my name to Bostic for the solo stuff and I can honor my grandfather that way. And he died shortly after I started doing this. So it's really great for me to honor him with this music and and in fact, there's a song. There's a song on this record. Uh, there's the line in "Reflections." Uh, I was afraid of the clouds, so you flew higher. When um, you were dancing on September Street, those are that line is memories about my my grandfather. He he flew me up in his little plane. He was a pilot, and oh, I was cool. afraid. But I thought the clouds would get stuck in the engine. <laughs> I was like, you know, you're not flying in the clouds, you're going to get stuck in the engine. He's like, oh, so he came me so he flew up. We went over the, the clouds. And I remember him on San Diego Street in uh, San Diego. You know, he danced a lot. He was a musician. He sang and danced. He was a really talented guy. And so that was one of my memories was my grandfather. So I threw it in that song. Well, as a record company guy for 30 years, it's like, PJ Bostick's way easier to pronounce when yes, it is. <laughs> R- R- rubberneck? What? <laughs> exactly. It's m- much easier. So, so give me a little history. Before Grandma Train, there was there were some other bands and stuff, and especially within the Christian music. And and I I find it kind of interesting that of the three bands you're most known for, uh, one was punk, one was heavy metal, and one was modern rock. So you kind of ran yeah. the gamut of Christian music, um, at least fringe music. So, but just give me a kid a little history and let the listeners know what the history of of PJ Bostic is as drumming for different bands. Okay. Well, if you go back a little bit further than uh, Bloodgood, I was in a band called Paragon. Oh, which, great! Um, back back then, you know, got some got a little bit of notoriety as an mm-hmm. independent band, and that's how I ended up in in Bloodgood. That band was very much sounded like Rush, and no surprise there, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so we warmed up for Bloodgood, and that's how they met me, and that's how I ended up in the band. So about and when was when was that? What era for Bloodgood was that? It was it was after they came out with um, All Stand Together. Oh okay. And they, uh, I think they, David Huff played drums on that record. Yeah. Real, real hard grooving album. Yeah. And um, that one of the things I really liked about touring with them then is that I got to play some some fun kind of heavy rock stuff and I got to play some heavy just straightforward groove stuff which I really like doing too which Sometimes really shows up because, yeah it shows up a lot on the album I yeah I, I do album. like to just I love just grooving you know sometimes I've been in bands where really just it was about playing some straightforward groove stuff and people are like you're probably pretty bored right because they think I just want to play all these drums here you know <laughs> um and I'm like, no, it's kind of nice to get away from this. And it's like dancing, just having fun and smiling at everybody and making nice contact. And and now if I was going to play four on the floor all night long, I'd probably get a little bored. But if I'm just kind of grooving and having some fun, it's great. I love it. 
grooming grooming can be challenging to just get inside that pocket and make that happen. Yeah, and and it's interesting because of those people that are friends with you on Facebook see that you know you have that amazing drum kit behind you, and it's that, that Neil Peart sort of like crazy Rush drum kit. And yet, when you listen to all of the different things that I that you've done, and I've been a fan for for a long time, um, there's a ton of diversity. Sometimes it's just a straight you know double kick, great you know heavy metal groove, and then sometimes it's it's got much more of a jazz and progressive influence. And then on this album, you get a whole lot of um, it's Rush, King's X, and it's that kind of a, of a just a feel i call it feel rock in that you kind of feel the direction of it it doesn't necessarily have to have this this certain vibe to it it just kind of moves uh the later rush sound i think is is kind of where you know i that that pocket seems to fit for me Mm -hmm. and and so as a result you know you at the same time you were also played in one bad pig (laughs) yeah you know that's uh funny because i i met those guys when i was in in blood good back in 93 it was the last show I did with Bloodgood and it was Casper Wyoming and they were really cool and I was since I was so new to the scene I thought it was really cool that I was hanging out with One Bad Pig and when I moved to Austin and started becoming friends with Daniel and Lee I was telling Daniel one day you know I was sitting there thinking how cool it was I was sitting across from One Bad Pig and he goes man I thought it was cool that I was sitting across from Bloodgood you know we had this mutual respect for each other and so when they asked me to, to play in the band, if someone had asked me the day before, like, do you think you'd ever see yourself in One Bad Pig? I would have said probably not. You know, they're, they're fun, and I have a lot of respect for those guys, but it, it didn't really seem like my thing. But when they were asking me about it, I, I really, truly think it was a God thing. There was just something that felt so perfect and so right about it. And the confirmation on that is the album. Like, it it just flowed. It was it was great. It was a great experience, and it was fun. And they, they just let me do whatever I want. And um, little did they know, like how much I could have really destroyed this record. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I was a little timid. I'm like, hey, is this, is this cool? You know, I'm kind of going off a little here and there. I'm like, hey, just do whatever you want. Do whatever you want. I'm like, okay, I want to use my little six-inch tom on this song. Is that okay? And like, hey, just do whatever you want. It's big. Just go, go nuts. Whatever. So I went a little nuts and. I personally think it's a great album. I think that they wrote some really great songs, and I think the chemistry was really good. And oh yeah, there was it, a lot of a lot of joy in that record. Yeah, it's a very fun, um, upbeat. It, it's a very in, encouraging sort of album, which you normally don't think of punk rock and encouraging at the same time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is. And then, and then you formed what's you know one of the in in the Christian music industry, one of the, the, the most significant bands of the 90s is, is Grandma Train. There's probably no way of escaping just how important that band was to the 90s. So how does that all come together? Well, I was uh, playing... Mike Ludgood had a Bible study called... Uh, so long ago, we were called... It'll, it'll come back to me. We, we had a name for our band. I can't remember what it was. But uh, we would play for this Bible study. And we would have fun with secular songs and we would change the words to turn it into these worship songs and we knew we were being you know kind of kind of cheesy but it was it was just fun stuff and and uh so Spiro introduced Pete to Michael and so Pete was in this band and so I got to know Pete and we just started talking and we hit it off and he came over to my house and we went down the basement and started playing some music and found that we had a lot in common 
And Dalton, my brother, was living with us at the time. He was renting a little room down the basement. And so I didn't really think he would be that interested. But I asked him if he want to, you know, just jam with us. And little did we know that when the three of us got together, the chemistry was amazing. And we felt so great together. And next thing you know, we were rehearsing four nights a week and gigging every weekend. So the chemistry just kept feeding on itself. And I swear we could just read each other's mind by the time we got signed and started touring. I mean, you, you, there's there's two albums that I think almost end up being classics for the '90s with both Flying House and uh, I mean Lonely House and Flying, that are just kind of considered these th- these are some definitive albums from that era. Um, and so so as that band dis- you know disappears, breaks up, there is no longer a grammar train, and then all of a sudden, what do you decide to do musically? Man, well first I was really upset when the band broke up i was devastated and i i can openly confess that i am guilty of wrapping up too much of my identity in my music and it, it's probably because for one it's uh just to be totally honest it's the only thing i've ever been able to do well you know it was it was something that made my dad proud and um you know, between me just being a messed up kid and and now understanding what is was probably ADD, you know, or something. You know, I didn't do well in school, couldn't couldn't concentrate. Uh, no one was really around to make me do my homework, and I just went out, got in a lot of trouble, and played music. So music was something that made me feel good about myself. Um, so I I did end up finding. Uh, getting together with a friend of mine and we always said we wanted to do a project together someday he was in a band if you haven't heard them you should check them out they're called uh my cat Puddinghead. oh yeah they did one oh yeah, yeah. so they've, Michael they've got an album on the list <laughs> yeah uh, i i listened i swear i listened to that album almost every day and for like a month and mike and i became really good friends and we started a band called gideon's press which later turned into uh the illustrated band and Sadly, uh, during the transition of Gideon's Press into the Illustrated Band, Michael Blake recanted his faith and just kind of took another path. So you can tell by the lyrics on the second album, they're just different than Mm -hmm. the first album. And um, we just kind of went our separate ways after that. And um, that's when I started. uh, Around that time, I was touring for Terry Bozio as his drum tech. I worked for him for like three years. And then I got hired to tour with Monty Montgomery. I started touring with secular bands. And some of those bands were really prestigious and were paying very good money, but I was just watching my Christian walk sort of tank. And I felt like the people around me in that industry were having more of an effect on me than I think I was having on them. And I prayed really hard about it. And God crystal clear just answered my prayer on that and um, so I just kind of got out of that and really focused on the PJ Bostic thing and of everything I've done I've, I was just telling Carrie from One Bad Pig last night uh, of everything I've done I've never felt so uh, passionate I guess about what I have to say it, in, in Bloodgood and even Grandma Train One Bad Pig you know the drummer's sort of the facilitator of the 
the singer, the front man, and whatever they feel comfortable talking about or writing about, singing, it's, it's almost like it's, you're a band, but it's almost like it's their ministry and you're facilitating, you're there to help make the music good so they can, they can talk. And God just put some, some stuff on my heart in this last record. Um, oh, sorry, we're, we're still back at... Uh, yeah, well, I, again, we're, that's we're fine. Light me on. I'm, I'm moving on to the net. I'll be thinking which, the which by the way, is, is I am going to be doing a special spotlight in about a month, a month and a half on Faith of Least Resistance, just so people know what we're talking about, the most recent album, uh, which I, again, I believe is, is one of the, if, if not the best album so far this year. Um, we're halfway through the year, a little more than halfway through the year, and I think it's by far the best. It's not only the one I've listened to the most, um, it's actually kind of a direction I was hoping to go in this conversation, uh, both you know, looking back at Bullies at the Border and also especially Light Me On, since Light Me On is kind of the focus of the conversation. Um, your lyrical content is, I think, some of the, the finest lyrics coming out of Christian hard music, uh, of heavier music in, in the past two decades. Um, you don't seem to um, have any issue being very... Um, what I would call a biblical or scriptural, like there, there's times where I feel like there's actually straight scripture being quoted in the midst of the song. But not only that, there seems to be like really, um, and, and I mean this in the greatest possible sense of, of the term, very strong theological truths that weave their way through the album. Am, am I reading more into it than what's there? Or is this something that's important to you? you? Know, I'm... Um very serious about the truth. Historical Christianity is it's just being ripped apart these days. And I'm no scholar, but I've spent a lot of time researching Christian history, biblical history, because I just, I really had to kind of know, I wanted to be able to see it from Jesus' day to, to now. And I'm really glad I did that. And there's that, and I, I wanted to be honest with people. I I feel like too many. Well, I guess I guess this maybe this isn't a bad thing, but I think too many people sometimes are are afraid to to be honest, admit honest enough to admit that they struggle and that they have sin in their life. And you see someone on stage, and you think, okay, that guy's got to be the perfect Christian because. Even with our secular artists, they say something that sounds wise from the stage, and we just think they must know something because they're Getty Lee or they're Sting or they're Bono. But none of these, well, Sting has a degree probably, but a lot of these guys don't really know much about the things they're talking about, you know, politically or whatever. And sometimes that's the case in the Christian music industry too. And I felt like I wanted to be as sound as, as possible when it comes to Christian theology, but also it's important to me that people know that I'm just as much of a screw-up as anybody else, and sometimes I'm even afraid of being that transparent, because I feel like if someone really got to know me and, you know, seeing my faults and stuff, they would think much less of me. But I'm willing to go down that road if it's going to encourage people. And I remember the first time I was in the men's meeting, I was probably 19, and these great men in our church that I really looked up to, I, I realized that they're struggling with a lot of the stuff that I was struggling with. And I really needed to hear that because I felt like everyone else had their act together except for me. 
And that's not a good place to be, I don't think. I think it's important to know that other people are struggling too. And you just don't give up. You know, you, you fight, you get up. If you fall, you get back up again. Yeah, and, and again, I, I, as I, I've been constantly listening to this album, introducing my wife to it. And um, it's just some of the information that we're getting from it is this concept of a God who condescended to us to love us and to bring us into his family. And as a result of his condescension, we see, and again, I don't want to read more into what you're saying, but we see him bigger because he was willing to then con- to condescend to to come to us and die for us we then he he then becomes much larger and and more amazing to us in, yeah, in our response absolutely yeah i think sometimes it takes when we think of faith like you have faith you think okay do you believe what the bible says yeah i have faith that this is true i have faith there's a god but then like do you really believe what it says like especially the part about god loves you and he forgives you for your sin i mean it takes a lot of faith to believe that the God that created the heavens and the earth loves me. Like, I, I've kind of struggled in the past of, I feel like God could, could love and forgive Hitler, but why would he forgive me, you know? I see all my garbage, you know, I've seen my past, and I just feel so unworthy, you know? And so to, to come to that realization that God does love me, and he forgives me. It's just, it's amazing. And it does make him so much bigger and more powerful and more amazing and yeah. more in awe and more deserving of worship. Yeah, and, and I think that's where I get kind of the idea of, from Light Me On, uh, Too Big For Me, um, um, mm-hmm. Be My Melody. Some of these songs, the, 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 the content just make, you know, desires to make God bigger. Uh, and, and I just find that to be so lacking in a world right now where so many of what we, you know, uh, Christian artists are so much, uh, so much is, is written about them and not so much about how truly awesome God is. And, but at the same time, if I can go back to the album a little bit, there's also kind of this, this um, demand for truth that I, you, you seem to be really seeking for, okay, I don't just want to worship a God. I want to worship the God. I want to know who the real God of Scripture is. And the, those sort of, of images and ideas seem to show up weaved all the way throughout this album. I'm glad to hear you say that. It, it, I, I don't even know if I noticed that. It's certainly, you know, on that other record we talked about. <laughs> but, you know, also what you're saying about writing about yourself, I, I feel like that's something, particularly on my first two records, that I was kind of guilty of. Like, I kept, I feel like I was writing a little too inverted. And I really, to this day, I still want to write a worship album. I just, I begged God to give me a worship album. And he just hasn't, you know. And I think the closest I've come to it probably is this album you know i i went to some hymns and i, I would kind of read through hymns and if there was a line i liked i'd write it down through the songwriting process and then i just went through all those notes and looked at them um and i had been reading some uh <laughs> i'd been reading some english uh literature some uh you know like the man in the iron mask and some uh c.s lewis and some uh three musketeers and stuff and so like the, the lyrics and the hymns are really beautiful to me. I just love that way of writing. And I, so I wanted to adapt some of that on this record. 
since I since I wasn't writing the worship music, and when I say worship music, I mean lyrically. Like yeah. musically, it, it would be the same. So I went to the hymns to sort of help me get in that mindset, and they inspired more lyrics from me along those lines. So some of those hymny sounding lyrics, some of them actually are taken straight out of hymns and kind of messed with a little bit. But I uh, I guess that was my compromise since it, since worship songs weren't coming to me but i was kind of tired of just writing about my problems i guess well you know? i'm actually and i wanted i'm sorry but i'm super excited that you said the word hymns because we were driving to church and i go this sounds like a hymn just <laughs> as if rush or king's x happened to write a hymn it it, it there is i mean there's even a couple of these and thous sprinkled mm-hmm. into it there is this sense of, and I had this um, pastor that once um, had this sermon on the awfulness of God, and it wasn't that God was awful, it's that that we should be full of awe because he is awful. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 that should be our response. And, and in Light Me On and, and Reflections and some of these other songs, Perfect Love, I feel like I get that sort of mentality uh, shining through the idea of recognize and that's the best way to put it recognizing who god is without having to to denigrate ourselves and realize that he loves us enough to die for us to save us to forgive us and yet it's that same god that is beyond our comprehension and and our recognition yeah um like we said you know it just gets too big it's, I'm okay with mysteries. I like mysteries. I think another mistake that we make is trying to take some of those mysteries, come up with what we think it is, and then we put it into our theology and say, this is the truth. When really, even some of these great scholars that have come to some of these conclusions, I really don't think they know. You know, I, Some things are just a mystery. And there's certainly core things in Scripture that you can't deny are truth. But some of these things that we debate about, you know, I look at them like cherry trees. You know, we we know that George Washington was the father of our country, but we don't know if he really chopped down the cherry tree. And we could argue about that all day all day long, but maybe the cherry tree is not that important. The main the main thing is that he was the father of our country and first president of the United States. And so there are some things in scripture that I know, you know, maybe Protestants uh, within the Protestant Church, like, you know, Baptists or, you know, whatever. We just have sort of these different opinions on things. And some of those cherry trees have caused a lot of division. And I wish we could just relax on some of those things. I understand why they're there, because people can get too carried away, and they can say, well, did, did Jesus really die for our sins, or did he just die to show us that he loves us? And they can call that a cherry tree, but... Yeah, that's not a cherry tree. Yeah, there are there are foundational truths that that must be agreed upon, but then there are the peripheral truths that can be rigorously debated without having to cause division. Uh, now, yeah, finishing up, we you know just have a couple more minutes, and I just kind of want to get a feel for when you were writing this album. Did you have a specific when you're writing songs and? And I don't know if a lot of people know, um, if you go to the credits on that album, um, 
yours is the only name pretty much on those credits. <laughs> you you did everything on that album. Yeah. So when you're doing everything on that album and you're also writing the songs, is there a um, um, a desire to create something specific? Are you writing just 10, 11 songs and hoping that they all fit together? Was there uh, a, a purpose coming into it since you know you have to take more time to record an album when you're doing everything? Yeah, it's, it's really exhausting and I gotta say, um, it, I'm really, I'm really proud of what I've done, but it also shows me my limitations in a way that <laughs> have really like, uh, made me kind of down on myself, you know, I, I know I shouldn't be, I, people tell me I'm down on myself too much, but, um, yeah, I usually, the music is just kind of in my head. It's just, I'll, I'll have a riff, I'll wake up and there'll be a song in my head and I'll get out my phone or my portable little recorder and I'll sing it in there. And when it comes time to do the record, I'll have like 200 little things of me, you know, and once in a while it'll be a drum beat. Uh, Light Me On actually was a drum beat, that, that, in, that instrumental in the beginning. I had this drum beat in my head and I came out here and played the drum beat and then I wrote a little bass line for it and added it on to that. But usually there's some kind of a riff and I'll play the riff and I'll see if it inspires the cool drum part and I'll see if that inspires another part. And Sometimes I get lucky and one riff I recorded goes along with another one and I can stick them together and then I'll try and come up with you know a verse and a chorus and whatever and then eventually some I'll sing some melodies and sometimes I just you know make stuff up just to have a melody if it comes to my head you know doing a podcast <laughs> in the studio <laughs> well that's where you want to do that now um I'm attempting to avoid the most controversial question of, of, of whether um, it's a guitar solo or a breakdown that is the most important thing because that apparently has become the new thing in heavier music is like, do you do guitar solos or do you do breakdowns? So we'll avoid that and just get straight to the theological questions. When you create a song, is there, uh, I don't want to say a fear, do you, but it, it, is there a desire to create or to to present a truth, even if you know that truth might be uncomfortable to some of the people that are listening? I feel like I've certainly, I'm trying to remember past records, certainly on, you know, that other record, that new one. Um, I, I was pretty bold on that record. Yes, very much so. Um, I think I'm just, you know, I picked, I picked my side and... I'm why go halfway you know either you're in or you're out and when I'm on my deathbed and I'm looking at what I did with my life I don't want to feel like I compromised or I tried to please anybody uh, if, if people want to hate me because of what I chose to sing about you know that'll uh, you know honestly it'll hurt my feelings a little bit I guess it'll make me sad it's not what I want but I have to answer to God first and foremost and I want my conscience to be clear when I'm ready to die. I want to feel like I did my best. And my music, I don't, I don't want it to be about entertainment or making money or pleasing people. I've always written music that I want to listen to because that, that to me is like the purest form of art if you create something that, that you love. And, and I do, I still might sound kind of arrogant, but I do like listening to my records because I wrote music that I wish somebody else would write. I wrote something I wanted to hear. Sometimes I get sick of it because <laughs> I, I wrote it. But when I've taken a break from a record, 
or like this one, you know, I had since you were gonna um, interview me about this record, I hadn't listened to it for a while, so I got it out yesterday and listened to it, and I, I really enjoyed it. It was nice hearing it again. Well, hopefully, at um, sometime maybe towards the end of the year, we'll have you back on because I'm going to be uh, kind of planning on doing an annual kind of the best albums, the albums that would have been on the list if the list didn't have a cutoff date of January 1st of 2020. And yours will definitely be on it. So I'm I'm going to put you on the spot and hopefully you'll say yes to come back and join us um, to talk especially about this amazing, ama- amazing project. Absolutely. Just say when and where and I'm there. Awesome. Well, we've been talking to, to Paul Rohrbach, also known as PJ Bostic. And his amazing project that if you have never heard it, you need to track it down. Don't just, uh, don't just stream it. Go get it. Um, it is called Light Me On. And it is one of those great albums that we've been talking about right here on Legacy. Number 975. Let's get this out of the way from the very beginning. I know nothing about this band. I know they're called Go-Go Street. I know that they were from Scotland. And I know that this is the only album that they ever did. But one thing I do know, I love this album. This is the epitome of what 1985 to 1990 sounded like in pop music, new wave music, uh, mainstream radio. It is everything I love about that genre and that style of music, whether it was 441 or Kaja or Krumbacher. This band had a sound that was incredibly current, very hip, and I really wish they would have made it across the pond, as they say, over to the United States because this music is amazing. Starts off with this great track called A Prisoner of Conscience. Moving from a general public to a Duran Duran sort of music and melody all the way throughout, Turn to Gold kind of follows in that same sort of vein, but it's also probably the most interesting musical composition on the album. It's very danceable, but there's this really kind of cool interplay between the guitar and the keyboard that just really works, and the vocals are killer. personal favorite on the album is Never Ending Love. It kind of has a little vibe of the, like Dexie's Midnight Runners. If you remember them, that's the Come On Eileen group. Kind of has that sort of feel, maybe a little like a, almost like a techno version of a Celtic sort of sound. Perfect for that genre and that style at that time.
Again, the band is called Gogo Street. It's literally almost impossible to find. I believe it was only released on cassette. There are ways to kind of track it down. I think it's worth it, especially if you were fans of bands like Early Undercover, Crumbacher, 441, Modern Mission. This is right up your alley. So anyway, that is Gogo Street with the album Gogo Street at number 975. Alright, let's face it, some albums are just meant to be fun, and this one may be one of the most fun of all. Two of the true great icons in the history of Jesus Music and CCM, Phil Kagey and Randy Stonehill, though they have performed together over the years countless times, finally got together back in 2009 to create an album together. The album is called Mystery Highway, and it kicks off with one of the most enjoyable rock and roll 60s influenced fun oh just a great song called who's your driver those familiar with phil kagey's classic album sunday's child which we will deal with much further in the future are going to really enjoy this album and those familiar with uh, randy stonehill's albums that were produced by terry scott taylor you will also find a lot here to enjoy there's a whole lot of Beatlesque sort of sounds, uh, including right here on Backwards on Her Bike. Lisa's got a secret, but she never keeps it to herself. She doesn't need to tell you, the smile will paint the picture oh so well. should be noted that a glass harp alumnus John Farah plays drums and then so does Phil Kagey but almost every virtual note is played by Stonehill and Kagey which makes it a really enjoyable album and one that they really work together on to create this one rocking in a hard place I will admit kind of sounds a little bit like John Mellencamp's R.O.C.K. in the USA but again super fun super creative and it's really just about having a great rocking time
some may note that there are really no screaming, crazy guitar solos from Phil Kagey, but that rather there's more of kind of a 50s or 60s sort of influence. Uh, there's a, a really odd song called Rockman, which may be the only one worth skipping on the entire album. There's kind of an Elvis-oriented song called Postcard Picture Perfect Day, and you know that's kind of where Stonehill is really in his element. But the last song I would like to talk about is one of Mark Hurd's finest compositions, Love Is Not The Only Thing. Here, Kagi and Stonehill just sing beautifully together. And Stonehill's stunning acoustic guitar work, really, always underrated, shines through on this song. Sun rises and we talk about the weather Sun bleaches and we ponder it all Fine line between the banker and the debtor And what happens if the satellites fall Too shy we are to come right out and say it Too sly to let the other one go Head full of this kaleidoscope of brain freight Heart full of something simple and slow Simple and slow And at 9.74, Jesus Music Icons Phil Kagey and Randy Stonehill's Mystery Highway. Number 9.73 Better times are coming when they come, you'll know Boys and girls rejoicing, having fun wherever they go New generation telling things that should be said Try to understand us better times are straight ahead It has become popular to talk about who would fit or who would belong on the Mount Rushmore of Jesus Music and CCM. Some people will gravitate more towards the artist. Sometimes people will gravitate more towards record executives. Some people would gravitate towards songwriters. Others would gravitate even towards pastors who kind of broke down barriers or allowed some of these bands to find a home. But one name that definitely belongs being considered is someone people don't talk about all that often, and that is Thurlow Spur. Now, Thurlow Spur was the music director for Youth for Christ International, along with being a great musician himself. And he put together some pretty popular groups in the late 60s and through the 70s, most notably the Spurlows. And they would travel around the country, part of Youth for Christ, and they would share the gospel, use contemporary music. Well, out of the Spurlows came a band called Regeneration. They were very popular, and out of Regeneration and some members of the Spurlows came this group, Crimson Bridge, and their classic album, Crimson Bridge. Not only was the music way ahead of the time, uh, the lyrics were also a little bit edgy for the day. They would incorporate some phrases that didn't fit into normal church-oriented music like, hey baby, or blow your mind, or having a good time. 
there would be kind of grunts and screams and all rights kind of thrown into the mix, kind of like a party atmosphere. That shows off a lot in that first track that we played called Better Times. But a lot of the album kind of falls into the easy ways sort of sound of, let's say, the mamas and the papas. But really, this album is kind of built around side two. On side two, you have this uh, three long suites, three long songs that kind of merge together to share the gospel. There are a lot of musical changes, a lot of lyrical changes. Very interesting, and, and it's really kind of something you just have to track down and listen to. Very unique, very kind of almost avant-garde for the time. It was more reminiscent of maybe Genesis and thematic-oriented albums than what we had in normal CCM or Jesus music at the time. can't face I don't even feel like running in the race and that is number 973 Crimson Bridges Crimson Bridge number 972 One of the most important groups in the history of Jesus music and into CCM was easily the Archers. The family of siblings of Steve and Tim and Janice Archer sang together for years and they crossed that bridge between Jesus music and CCM. They will have a few albums on this countdown list, but the first we're going to be talking about is here at number 972, and that is All Systems Are Go, which ended up being the last album that they would do for Light Records, and the second to last album overall. The last album, in fact, they did none of the songs in terms of songwriting, so this is actually the last Archers album that had songs written by the Archers. 
It would also lead to a television show on TBN using the same name, All Systems Are Go, and the title track became a huge hit. As popular as All Systems Are Go was as a single, really, it came down to one major song, one of the biggest hits the Archers ever had, and that was actually a duet between Tim and Janice. The song, Heaven in Your Eyes, was one of the biggest hits of the year and became a radio staple and an accompaniment track favorite for many years. Now, you're going to hear a combination of dance music and nice soft ballads throughout. There's a touch of that feral and feral on it as well on a song like maybe Get Ready or Get Right. And personal favorite, though, is the song What's It Gonna Take? Mainly because I hear a whole lot of David Pack-type vocals. And David Pack was the lead vocalist for Ambrosia, a group I have always loved. And it kind of has that feel throughout. So at 972, that is The Archers and All Systems Are Go. Here at Legacy, we want to make it easy for you to find us. There are several different ways that you can talk to us and let us know what you think about what is going on here at the podcast and also on the blog. You can always go to our website at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com. That's LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums.com or by email at LegacyCCMsGreatestAlbums at gmail.com. You can always find us on the Facebook and interact with us there at facebook.com slash Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, at Instagram at Legacy CCM's Greatest Albums, and finally on Twitter at Legacy CCM's Best. Number 971. In the realm of spirits or superhuman powers, in the world as it is, or as it shall be. There is a light that shines on in the dark, and the darkness has never mastered it. I'm joined right now by Mike Manthai of Anthem, which actually is it, isn't the real official name um, Anthem. 
and the the rock band or something like that. The I think I saw. Band. I remember seeing yeah. that on the album cover, like Anthem, the rock band. <laughs> right. We had to. Uh, we wanted to uh, differentiate ourselves from. And, and at the time, there were no other bands called Anthem. It was just us. But we somehow thought that we, you know, just being first doesn't give you exclusivity. And it's true. Now there are at least what twenty other bands that have come and gone <laughs> since. Yeah, and, and we were talking before we started about Toonsmith, and they actually had the first Third Day album, which is a totally <laughs> different band than the Third Day that most people are familiar with. <laughs> yeah. So, so give yeah, me a, uh, a, a story about the, the the band. How how did this all come to being? You end up on Toonsmith, and and you have this album that people kind of still have this real affection for, despite the fact that it's you know it's heading to forty years. Yeah, it, it was, uh, well, we, we had the luxury of uh, having Mary Pinkley as our vocalist, who, when we performed live, she made a real connection with our audience. I mean, there was this passion, obviously, you can tell by her voice, um, uh, it, but she made a pa- uh, this, this connection with our audience, and when Mary sang a song about pain, and loneliness, and you, you just believed her, you know, and it was, it was true, it was a real connection. Yeah, in um, fact, talking real quick about, about Mary, I think it's kind of interesting, when I listen to Anthem, um, it's almost as if, and I mean this in the best, po- I mean, this is to me the ultimate compliment, it almost is like Pauline Wilson decided to do a rock album with Sea Wind, <laughs> and right, they called it right. Anthem, because she's just got a powerhouse. Yeah, she's also been been compared to Grace Slick. You know, if Grace Slick had had you know found the Lord and and you know wanted to uh, speak very candidly about her past, and that's what it would have come out like. But she had a soulful jazziness to her voice that a lot of other the female rock singers. I mean, she's way more Pauline Wilson than she is Pat Benatar. Yes, yeah, and uh, and then it was you know then in now see. Uh, my original intention was to have Kent with me because he's more of our historian. He remembers the dates and all that better. But yeah, then at there was a 1983 or 84. We uh, Mary needed to step out. This was too much. You know, as we started to get a little more popular, uh, it, and we just sort of had this regional success. You know, we were we were famous enough around the Tulsa, Oklahoma area so that we couldn't go to the mall without getting asked for an autograph and that sort of thing. But uh, and then, but because of Toonsmith, we had worldwide coverage, but just not much. You know, we've always been this, hey, I found an album, but there was only one of them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but yeah, then our, our, our next singer that replaced Mary. But, but anyway, so yes, I'm going to get a little bit uh, disjointed here because I don't tell stories very often. But, um, but because of the... The, the rigors of actually trying to make it in the music business. It was just too much for Mary and her family to endure. It needed to be a little more, you know, I really can't. Because at the time we were thinking, well, we're going to either have to move to Nashville or we're going to have to move somewhere, you know, or to either coast because Tulsa, Oklahoma isn't big enough. So we need to take this more seriously. Yeah. So how does a band from Tulsa, Oklahoma end up on a record company from British Columbia? It, that was pretty pretty weird, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> well, we just had we had some very passionate uh, fans that were local, and uh, one of them happened to be uh, Eddie Everett, and who worked at one of the studios in Tulsa, and he uh, he got us to, in the studio to record, 
And um, then we had some other folks that just, uh, you know, farmed the album around to people that they knew. And, and it was one of those things where, you know, we're living on rice and beans. And, you know, so it was, uh, it was a little rough. You know, we, we basically had the uh, last minute uh, 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 donation before we went into the studio, you know, the night before. It's like, we still need a lot of money before we can even start recording. Mm. And so, and so you end up on Toonsmith, again, that's a label out of, of Canada, that kind of was known uh, before record labels like Frontline and others came along. Toonsmith was kind of like the rock and roll label, um, Servant and um, Stronghold and Justice and a whole bunch of other bands that were kind of a little bit on the cutting edge in comparison to what uh, the other labels were doing on the right. mainstream market. Mainstream and so you end up there. It's really mellow compared to us. And uh, so another thing, the only people that saw us live would know this, but we were one of the very few bands that used pyrotechnics. So uh, it was us and Barnabas and Servant used them, but in much, mm-hmm. much more comical way because their stage show was, well, first off, it was very slick. I mean, they, they wanted to almost do a carnival instead of a, a rock show. Yeah. And but when we would see Servant, we would go, oh, man, we got to go back and do our homework. Yeah, I, mean, I remember <laughs> seeing Servant, and they would have like a drum solo, and they'd have a dueling drum solo with the laser drum solo uh, up on a screen. And, and then you would sure, have yeah. the drummer do the, you know, it would, like dueling drummers and dueling banjos. And it was, it was, but I do remember I saw Barnabas a few times, and they had the explosions, and it was more of the... Uh, the dry ice and the smoke and some yep. bombs and, oh, yeah. and, and we were explosions at the end of the songs. Big into dry ice, big into the smoke and the pyro and the, and when people would say, "Wow, gee, what what were you thinking? Why does a Christian band need all of this?" and we would say, "Well, you know, we're here to kind of encourage you to go to heaven and, and, and warn you about hell." And so we thought we'd give you a taste. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and, and again, you know, you're, people think that you know, at that time you're not competing with uh, Servant and Barnabas. You're kind of competing with people who are going to shows to seeing, you know, Kiss Alive 2 type shows. And they're seeing other major bands, especially a lot of us will sometimes forget either it's memory or those of us who weren't born yet. But the 80s, uh, I'd say 75 to 85 for rock bands, it was really all about the show. It was, you know. It was big boots and, and explosions and leather and, you know, dangling yeah. whatever. And, and, and there was just was so much uh, accoutrements. Yeah. But, but there was still a lot to do with music. And right, I mean, if you think about what the pop scene is right now, it really is all about the show. It has nothing to do with even talent for the most part because they're lip-syncing or whatever. At least back in the 80s, we were actually playing live, you know. Yeah. But it was really fun to just to be... Um, a part of uh, of Toonsmith just because they were the they were the ones that took the chances. I mean, they they signed us, you know, this ragtag group. They didn't stick with just you know the punk of Barnabas or the or the show group of of Servant. And it was uh, it was just nice that they took chances. I think we had that kind of one in a million shot that not very many bands had. Yeah, and so the the album ends up in their hands, and they release it. And what happens after that to a band like like Anthem? Well, we uh, I got stupid, <laughs> so uh, 
you know, I, when we got signed, I went to my boss and I said, "Woo, we got signed. And, and he, my boss says, that's really cool. What does that mean? I said, well, pretty soon I'll give you my two weeks notice. And of course, two weeks go by and two months go by and two years go by and I'm still working there. And so my boss is ridiculing me every, almost every day. He says, how's that album contract going? You know, Because <laughs> I was clueless and so was everybody else. But, you know, good natured ribbing is a... Uh, part of building character yes. and and so you have an album out and you decide you're gonna jump in a van want, and tour yeah, we, we, we did some we did some uh, regional touring but you know we were still broke and so instead of um instead of Tim Smith giving us you know any of the royalties from the album sales they said well we're gonna we'll hang on to it and we'll use it to help you fund album number two just go back to you know, do what you're going to do and, and do your local tours and regional tours and, and uh, you know, and start working on your, your next material. But when it came time to do that, we uh, we call up Tune Smith and we say, okay, we're ready for album number two. And that's when they told us, well, we're kind of kind of shutting the doors. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you're, you're probably not alone. I think there were a few artists that had album number two or album number three that were Absolutely. that were slated through the praise industries up there in Canada to uh, to put out projects. So, um, moving back a little bit in time, you put together a band of what a five piece band, six piece band, and you start kind of writing songs. A yeah. bit. Yep. And you start writing songs. How does that all come together? Oh, you mean uh, the actual first version of Anthem was yeah. a uh, a senior project that for. Uh, uh, one of the first members in at Oral Roberts University, and as it grew, it sort of, you know, started taking on a life of its own. Because in order to make his, um, what I'm going to say, I'm, I'm using air quotes like this video is actually going to get used, but the air quotes were the senior project required bio sheets and uh, business cards and all the stuff that you would do for you know doing a, a band. Well it started attracting a little bit of attention and that's how they found me because originally it was just Oral Roberts University kids and um, so one of the members discovered me sitting on my car playing guitar while he was there to talk to uh, another gentleman about some gig at a at a local coffee house called, called the Rainbow's End in, in Tulsa and uh, he said hey uh, what do you want to do with your music? And so I told him the, the usual, you know, I'm going to be a rock star or at least make money at it. And uh, so that was, that was funny. He says, you should come down and join this band. It's pretty good. And so I went down and, and I was immediate, just kind of fell in love with the people. You know, it was, uh, we were pretty rough around the edges at that point. And but then we, uh, and they, we, uh, because of the dress code at Oral Roberts University, I show up with long hair and it, no other guy in, on the campus was allowed to have hair even touching their collar. So I was the kind of the pet hippie that they would parade around, which of course attracted more attention. And then, you know, and then we thought, you know, well, we can't put this much energy into it just for a senior project. We got to go play out. So we played out and that attracted more friends and it just sort of grew. And uh, towards kind of the end of, that probably we we were probably a band for a year or so and then um then uh that's when eddie everett said hey you should you know i, I know this gal that can sing and that's when mary joined and then then eddie would push us to say you guys need to get an album ready because we have a studio and you know and i don't know that we would have 
gone as far as we did. It may have just been a fun little hobby for a while, and we might have lost interest if it hadn't been for Eddie. So, what about what about the songwriting responsibilities? Where does that where did that lie primarily? Oh, usually it was just jamming. You know, we would we would put music together. Um, I think uh, our first drummer, Gene Grammatico, was the uh, was more of a the lyricist in the, in the early days. Oh, okay. But, but all of us really kind of had a, had a hand in it because um, it was just so much fun to to jam together and come up with ideas because uh, we had this kind of unwritten rule that we discovered one day that um, we said, "Well, did you notice that?" We'd always try whatever would would come up, no matter whose idea it was or whose or how far out the idea was. We would always at least try, and then pretty pretty soon you would you would say, "Nah, that didn't work at all," or, "Gee, that was great," but no no idea was ever shelved before it was at least tried, and that's what really made it fun. Uh, songwriting was this group effort that almost nothing happened in a vacuum, uh, although. You know, somebody would always come in. I was noodling on this while I was watching television, and it happened to sound good with a TV commercial. And uh, I like this group. Let's try it. So, okay, so it. yeah, because you have a, a the, the the songs kind of just have a there's a consistency, I guess is the best way to put it, is that there's kind of this this rock mixed with a whole lot of soul sort of feel to it, and I don't know if that's just Mary's voice that kind of comes through. But it's yes. it's not just you know the three chords and a and a and a pounding explosion. There's a lot of musicality <laughs> yeah. taking place. Uh, yeah, that was that was uh, a lot of it was me just trying to be polyrhythmic without, and then the rest of the band would usually hold me back because we still wanted to be accepted by an average listener because, uh, you know, really avant-garde, uh, you know polyrhythmic music is usually not widely accepted so we wanted to be fairly um, generic I guess maybe is a great word but um, but yeah that was and, and honestly yes we we were matter of fact um, Kent and I were talking earlier today about how we actually just sort of forced Mary into singing songs uh, singing to the rock songs because we wanted to do a rock album and Mary wanted to sing soul and it blended together so well we thought well, everybody can have their cake and eat it too, right? Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's the don't. thing that really, for me, kind of stood out. It separated um, any of the other rock bands of the female vocals. Obviously, it separated you guys from what Barnabas sounded like or what Servant sounded like. Um, but at the same time, the lyrical content was really, at least for me, I at that time was probably I don't know, eighteen years. I was in you know my late teens. They really appeal to me as this is what I'm going through when I hear songs like Cutting Through or Word or especially Winners. I think Winners is just um, a winner on the album. Um, and then I've always complained that Morningstar should have been about seven minutes longer. Um, I, just, I just think that that could have been like a jam song. I think all of a sudden you guys could have just gone off musically for like seven minutes and done some amazing solo sort of work on it. It just, yeah. it seemed to well, fit. Well, it sort of happened in in real life. It certainly happened for almost every song had a longer version. And uh, and a lot of the, um, the, the pairing them down into radio length songs or whatever was a lot of uh, uh, Eddie's prompting too, just because... He wanted so much. He, he loved us as, I mean, we we're all like real brothers and sisters to him. So 
he just wanted us to succeed. And he said, well, you know, first off, you only have a certain limited number of minutes on each side of an LP, so there's only so much you can do with that. So he, he said, pick one song to kind of stretch out on, and that was what Word was. Yes. And, um, but, but, um, the, uh, but Morningstar was the one where he, he felt like that was our one shot at having a hit. And, um, you know, as a guitar player, as a, as a heavy guitar player, in, in my own mind, uh, Morningstar was the one where I, I don't even think I played on that one. Um, you know, so it was like, oh, gee, yeah, the, the one I didn't play on is the one that's going to get airplay. <laughs> but thankfully, there were enough radio stations, you know, also taking chances like Tinsmith did. Yeah. So, so tell me, where, where, where's the band now? What do you, what do you do? You said you're actually visiting some friends that are band members. What, what, what's yep, going I'm on? Actually, we are actually having a little bit of a uh, band reunion this week, and um, so we're in, um, we're up in Seattle area, and we're just, uh, uh, just getting together and celebrating the fact that we finally finished an album that is 37 years old. <laughs> Which is, no. Well, I shouldn't say that. Um, we, we, so we did just put out our second album, yes. which was slated to go out on Toonsmith, and that's when they said, "Hey, we're out of money. Sorry." Um, and of course, we got we, as you would expect, we were crushed by that. And we uh, tried to regroup, and it was just, it was just, it felt like we were starting over, and we kind of were. And at some point, we just kind of. So, yeah. so tell me, as, as we finish up here, um, tell me, give me some update on that album. Oh, well, it's uh, currently uh, streaming only. I, I, I haven't gotten enough interest in getting physical product to actually, you know, press CDs or anything like that. But um, so it's on all the basic, you know, major streaming platforms. Is there a way, is there all the way to download uh, yes, actually, uh, I know that Amazon.com. If you, okay, you can download from Amazon, perfect. Um, and uh, there may be other ones too. I just don't, I don't know the streaming platforms that well. No problem. You know, it, we we will find it, and hopefully, maybe this conversation will spark a little interest because I do know that you joined a conversation on one of those Facebook pages a, a few weeks ago. It started our conversation about having you come on the program. That there was a lot of people discussing Anthem. And, yeah, it was and again, wonderful. Yeah, wasn't I, it great? I, I, I tell you what. Here's the here's the the most heartwarming thing is that we had to, you know, let the band go essentially and and move on with our lives. And we actually have had one you know, of wonderful careers. I I end up now I have my own recording studio, so that's how the the second album finally came out. Was that I said, you know what? There's nothing really stopping us from finishing this album, and I still love these guys. So what? Let's get together and and uh, finish this up. But. Um, I, actually, just all the stories that we have heard through the years, people have kind of gone out of their way to track me down or some of the other members of the band and say, you, you guys really helped me through a really tough time. This this album really ministered to me. And as as a listener of, of Christian music, you think that's kind of a fun thing to do, but it's a lot more than just fun for us. It's very touching when we hear that we actually helped somebody through a tough patch. And... Um, and especially when we were just doing something we love doing. So, oh, well, that that uh, is that is great to hear. Again, we've been talking to Michael Manthai from Cutting. Uh, excuse me, the album is Cutting Through. The group is called Anthem, the Rock Band. <laughs> 
and and um, um, you the new can still... album is called Time Capsule. Okay, so the new album is called Time Capsule. You can look for that on all of those streaming services. Hopefully, we can get enough interest. I would love to find some uh, vinyl in the future, which of course now is the way to go. Uh, but again, yeah, apparently it has become the way to go. But again, we've been talking to Michael Manthai of Anthem. So, what happens when a couple Starbucks baristas get together and start writing songs? Well, for Joshua Havens and Matt Fuqua, you end up forming a band called The Afters. And for the past two decades, they have been creating some of the best Christian rock music in the world. Right now, at number 970, we're going to talk about the album Life is Beautiful. Those who are already familiar with this album and with the band in general know they're just kind of a hit machine. Radio has gravitated to several of their songs and they've had had several uh, top 10 singles and a couple number ones. The album kicks off with one of the great hits from the album, in fact the biggest hit from the album, Every Good Thing. A top 10 radio single and a longtime concert favorite became kind of an anthem for people over the past decade. The song is called Broken Hallelujah, and it's actually a very worshipful album or worshipful song, but it has more humility and sorrow than most of modern worship music. In fact, I kind of wish more modern worship music would use such uh, biblical standards in the creation of the lyrical content. I can barely stand right now. Everything is crashing down And I wonder where you are I try to find the words to pray I don't always know what to say But you're the one that can hear my heart One other hit I'd like to kind of bring out is the song Breathe In and Breathe Out. It kind of has that touch of early Imagine Dragons, really big, strong-sounding drums, really catchy melody, and I think that it works really well in the midst of it, even though it kind of stands out differently than the rest of the uh, songs on the album. Might be why I like it so much, because of its originality and the fact that it just really has a great sound. Of everything we've got to do 
be a page of empty lines I apologize to myself for living in the future So that is the afters, Life is Beautiful, at number 970. You know, it never really mattered if Ken Tamplin was recording under the name Shout, Magdalene, Ken Tamplin, Just Tamplin, or like here, Ken Tamplin and Friends. He would create great, melodic, hard rock, better than just about anybody else in Christian music, and to be honest, pretty much right on par with anything that was happening musically. He has one of the greatest voices, one of the widest ranges, and the most diverse voices around, along with being one of the best guitar players in all of Christian music. He is simply one of the best rockers and one of the most important people in our industry. cousin of Sammy Hagar, Ken was blessed with even a more diverse vocal palette. He would create songs that were straight ahead metal, hard rock, blues, soul. It really didn't matter whether it was the living for my Lord kicking off the album or going all the way. It seems to be whatever Ken touches vocally turns to gold. You know, it does say Ken Tamplin and Friends, so who are these friends that he is talking about? Well, for the most part, you got Lanny Cordola playing guitar on the album as well. And of course, you know Lanny played with House of Lords and also played with Magdalene. Uh, Ken Mary of House of Lords is on the album. Uh, Joey Tafola of Jag Panzer is on the album. And even Mark St. John of Kiss appears on the album. It's an impressive lineup of amazing musicians that Ken got together to create a really great hard rock album. There are instrumentals, there are songs that sound like they're going to be instrumentals that actually turn out being rock songs, kind of like Going Home starts out with a three-minute instrumental rock masterpiece and then all of a sudden turns into this killer 80s blues metal sort of sound. 
The song also shows off Ken's amazing multi-octave range. But when it comes to songs like Never Give Up, you just think Whitesnake. That is Ken Tamplin and Friends with an axe to grind. And now, number 968. So when I was working at Maranatha Village, I coined this little phrase that I called Wayne Watsonitis. So what's Wayne Watsonitis? Well, by definition, it's everyone knows my songs, but nobody remembers my name. And it all kind of started when I invited my sister to see Wayne Watson in concert at Melodyland, which was this big church across the street from Disneyland that used to hold a whole bunch of concerts and it was kind of the main place to go. And she told me she was pretty unfamiliar with his music, but about halfway through the concert, she kind of leans over and says, I know every single one of these songs. And that's simply the way it is with Wayne Watson. He has a collection of songs that a ton of people are familiar with. But when we have shows like this or conversations about great artists of the 70s and 80s, quite often Wayne gets left off the list. It is unfortunate because he wrote amazing music and he had a ton of radio hits, including this one called Looking Out for Number One. But really, this album all comes down to one song. It's a really powerful song that's kind of in the vein of, let's say, something like Butterfly Kisses. It's called Somewhere in the World, and it probably could have just as easily been another song about parenting until you actually listen to the song deeply and you realize it's the story of a father praying for the future wife of his son. appear several more times on the list as we go through. In fact, you're probably pretty familiar with songs like Touch of the Master's Hand, which is truly a classic song. When we talk about classics, that was one of them. But this album, Giants in the Land, really showcases Wayne as a songwriter and as a singer. Wayne has one of the best voices in Christian music, and people sometimes don't recognize it. They're not ashamed. 
That's Wayne Watson's Giants in the Land at number 968. Thank you once again for joining me on this episode of Legacy, CCM's Greatest Albums. My name is David Lohman, and again, if you have the opportunity, please go to the Facebook page. All you have to do is look up Legacy, CCM's Greatest Albums, and join. And when you do, you can then join in on the conversation talking about these albums. Hopefully you're also enjoying hearing from artists like PJ Bostic or Michael Manthai of the band Anthem. It's why we're doing it. Also, I hope you're getting a chance to hear new artists like maybe Gogo Street or Crimson Bridge. So until next time, my name is Dave Lohman and I will see you right here on Legacy. See you.